Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. And I'm Stephanie Cox. We have stories for you today. Let's get into it. An intensive manhunt remains underway after two shootings rocked Lewiston, Maine last night. At least 16 people were killed and dozens of others were wounded. Some may have been injured in a stampede, according to some reports. The shooter opened fire at a bowling alley and a restaurant in Lewiston around 7 p.m. local time. Police released images of a suspect holding a rifle in firing position. Law enforcement officials identified 40-year-old Robert Card as a person of interest in the shootings. Authorities say Card recently threatened to carry out a shooting at another location in Maine. He's a certified firearms instructor and member of the U.S. Army Reserve. Officials say he has reported mental health issues, which included hearing voices. According to Fox News, citing a law enforcement source, Card may have a police scanner and could be listening in on police movements. State police asked residents in Lewiston and in the nearby cities of Auburn and Lisbon to stay indoors. Several schools in the area canceling classes today. Presidents Biden and Schumer ordered flags lowered to half-staff to honor the victims. The FBI and state police are asking anyone with information or tips to call in. We'll have more updates later in the show. And earlier, I spoke to former FBI Special Agent Greg Schaefer. Greg served as an operator on the FBI's elite hostage rescue team. He's internationally recognized as one of the leading experts on active shooter events and domestic terrorism prevention. Greg Schaefer, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. To begin with, I'd like to look at what's the typical protocol for law enforcement when dealing with an active shooter situation like the one that we've seen in Lewiston, Maine. Well, you know, what they're doing right now, they're, they're looking for the individual. They're talking to all of his friends and family members. They are scouring through his social media, his cell phone, anything that they can get their hands on that might uh, indicate to them what, one, his motive was, and two, whether he's getting any help or assistance from anybody on the outside, and three, where he may be hiding right now. So they're combing through and interviewing as many people as they can, looking at as much information and intelligence that they can gather to find out where he may be at this time as he's still unlocated. And what are some of the challenges that law enforcement faces in this process? Well, you know, shooting occurred at nighttime last night, and uh, all through the night they've been having this huge manhunt. So just the darkness alone was certainly a, a hindrance to law enforcement. Uh, I am confident that uh, my old team, the FBI's hostage rescue team, is probably on site now assisting in the search. They have canine units there, I'm sure, from, from multiple jurisdictions and probably even from out of state. Uh, they have air assets uh, up in the air, a helicopter fixed wing with forward-looking infrared devices trying to locate him. Uh, it, it does help that it's getting cooler up there now with the fall season upon us up there in Maine that's colder. So his heat signature will be bigger and better for the forward-looking infrared that you're using. So that's, that's, that's a help to law enforcement. Uh, but they're just trying, trying to scour, again, everything that they can get their hands on related to him to include his cell phone, his social media, to find out where he may be and whether he got assistance from somebody or maybe even with the river on scene there and also the, uh, the closest of the, of the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, you know, he, he could be out of state by, by this time. And it's been, what, 15 hours? So there's a, it's a wide swath to search right now. It certainly is. And in cases like these, how important is community cooperation and what can people out there do to help law enforcement? 
Well, they have a hotline, a tip line that's critical. That's a force multiplier for law enforcement that allows the uh, the police to, to, to utilize the eyes and ears of the public for getting any information. So right now the public can just, you know, do what they do best and that's just keep their, their eyes open, their ears to the ground and report anything suspicious and call that tip line and let the police handle the investigation and the, the approaching of the individual from there. And with your expertise as a former FBI agent, what advice would you give to law enforcement now in this process of the, this search? Uh, you know, at this time, um, they're, they're working on 15 hours. I'm sure they, uh, that the night shift last night is still working hard. They, won't, they don't want to take the time off. They don't want to end their shift. They'll, they'll work through the day uh, continuously. Uh, so I, my advice is, you know, for law enforcement to, to stay hydrated, to get something to eat, get some rest when you can, but there are going to be some long days and long nights ahead if they don't find this individual soon. And what lessons would you say can be learned from this incident in terms of improving future responses to active shooter situations? Well, we find that the response is not the answer. You know, uh, we need to focus more on prevention and not just response. I mean, having this manhunt is, is, is all well and good. It needs to be done. The police are on site doing what they do best. But again, it's after the fact. We as a nation need to get better at preventing these incidents from happening. And Prevention can be through better mental health care. You know, we don't have any, uh, you know, involuntary uh, orders being mandated to keep people like this in a mental health care facility. He, you know, put himself in a mental health care facility, was there for two weeks, and was released. You know, based on that alone, he should not have the opportunity to even possess weapons for that kind of mental uh, condition. So, um, you know, we got to get better at prevention and not just focus on response. Um, for instance, they could have used uh, uh, artificial intelligence in the cameras at the bowling alley or at the, at the, the bar where he did the shooting. Had the cameras been outside in the parking lot when he got out of the vehicle with his weapons, that artificial intelligence would have recognized him as having a weapon in hand and could have started the process of notifying those individuals in those places there was an individual coming in with, with a weapon in his hand. So, again, we need to focus on prevention, not so much in response. Greg Schaefer, retired FBI agent on the Elite Hostage Rescue Team. Thank you so much. Up next, we are tuning in to the House Financial Services Committee hearing on moving the money, understanding the Iranian regime's access to money around the world and how they use it to support terrorism. And that's being led by or held by the House Financial House Financial Services Committee Subcommittee Oversight and Investigations, chaired by Bill Huizenga. Let's tune in. Mr. Goldberg, Mr. Uh, Nerona, and Mr. Thomas, I want to say thank you for being here. Uh, we appreciate your time. I know for at least two of you, uh, you were uh, also part of a hearing yesterday with my uh, colleague uh, Blaine Lukemeyer. Uh, so you're pulling to some double duty, and uh, we do appreciate that. And uh, the, at, at the end of the day, we are trying to find out how we can help stabilize the Middle East. That ultimately is the, uh, is the goal here. So let me be clear. Today's hearing should not be labeled as partisan. Members from both sides of the aisle have concerns about how the Iranian regime is able to support terrorism around the world continue its march towards developing nuclear weapon capabilities and suppress human rights of its own people. So let's begin today by setting the stage. 
Since 2021, the Iranian regime has profited nearly $80 billion from oil sales around the world, which is due in part to relaxed sanctions. Earlier this summer, reports indicated that the United States and Iran had resumed diplomatic engagements after the Biden administration failed to uh, revive the Joint Comprehensive Plan, or JCPOA. Uh, in September, the United States and Iran finalized a swap involving the release of five American hostages in exchange for five Iranian nationals who had been charged with sanctions violations and federal crimes while agreeing to give Iran access to approximately $6 billion in funds previously held in South Korea. <clears throat> Similarly, the administration waived sanctions to allow more than $10 billion worth of Iranian assets held in Iraq to be transferred to Oman and other jurisdictions. Three weeks ago, Hamas committed just one of the most brutal uh, terrorist attacks that we have ever seen uh, on the state of Israel, and 30 Americans tragically lost their lives in that. It's important to note that Hamas receives approximately $350 million per year in support from Iran, or roughly 93% of their total funding. Finally, last week, the Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee launched an investigation to better understand the administration's decisions regarding economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. So today's hearing will focus around three central questions. First, how restricted Iranian funds are held around the world and how, Iranian regimes, how the Iranian regime accesses them. Uh, second, uh, understanding the genesis of the $6 billion used as negotiating terms to release the hostages in Iran. Where, what, is, that, is that, in fact, what happened? And third, how the administration helped the Iranian regime more easily access an additional $10 billion paid by Iraq for electricity. Here's what Congress can do. First, we can push for greater transparency when any administration is choosing to waive sanctions that have been passed by this body, especially as negotiating terms and any hostage deal with the Iranian regime. Members of this body should not be kept in the dark, and consequences are too great. Next, we do not allow uh, sanctions to be waived, rolled back, or funds transferred. Time and time again, Iran has shown that it's willing to starve its own people in pursuit of supporting terrorism or achieving a nuclear weapon. Naively believing that diplomatic agreements will deter Iranian regime, the, the Iranian regime will be done at our own peril. We must cripple their economy and return the previous administration's maximum pressure campaign, in my opinion. Let me close with this. I know there's a lot of different opinions uh, about what is happening in Gaza and, and with the Palestinians and with Israel, but we should all agree that innocent civilians should not be used as political cover. Make no mistake, Hamas is no friend of the Palestinian people, in my opinion, and the Iranian regime is no friend of ours. We must not waver in our support for our ally of Israel. Uh, Mr. Chairman, this hearing is ostensibly being held to investigate how Iran accesses restricted funds around the world, looking at two instances where the United States has granted waivers for Iran to access these specific restricted funds. Some of my colleagues across the aisle, however, may try to link these waivers to the attacks in Israel. This would be a callous attempt to politicize what is already a horrific 
crisis. We cannot allow this hearing to become a distraction action by my colleagues across the aisle from 23 days of legislative inaction. We cannot allow the blame game with political fallacies to masquerade as proven facts. Let's examine some of the political fallacies refuted by proven facts. Political fallacy one, the six billion transferred from South Korea to Qatar has been handed over to Iran. Proven fact, not a scintilla of a cent. Some things bear repeating. Not a scintilla of a cent has been released to Iran. On October 12, 2023, the US and Qatar agreed to restrict the funds in response to the attack on Israel. We are tuned in to the House Financial Services Committee hearing titled, Moving the Money, Understanding the Iranian Regime's Access to Money Around the World and How They Use It to Support Terrorism. The, sub I'm sorry. the subcommittee on oversight and investigations is hosting the hearing. That it's chaired by uh, Bill Heisinga from Michigan. We, who we just heard from right then. He started off saying that it's really important for us to examine these issues in order to stabilize the Middle East, which is, of course, undergoing a huge transformation right now with the war with, between Israel and Hamas. He pointed to the 2021—oh, he said that in 20, since 2021, Iran has made about $80 billion from oil sales around the world, and that's despite U.S. sanctions on Iran's uh, funds, and some of those sanctions, of course, have been waived, which is what we're wanting to look at and the House is wanting to look at during this hearing. He also spoke about that this as a bipartisan, bipartisan concern. Um, you know, Iran supports terror around the world. They supported Hamas before this attack, though they claimed that they weren't behind coordinating it. Um, they, they've been building, they've been working towards building a nuclear weapon for years, getting closer um, all the time, it seems. And they oppress their own people. You know, we saw just last year a woman killed. Um, he mentioned the, the, the hostage swap that was conducted between the U.S. and Iran. Um, five U.S. hostages for five Iranian hostages. But Iran also is getting this $6 billion. Which has been you know, criticized as potentially uh, playing into the Iran-backed Hamas attacking Israel at this time. And yet we did also just hear from Co Democratic Congressman Al Green saying that the, that $6 billion actually hasn't made it into the hands of the Iranian regime just yet. It was halted um, after that war began. Yeah, and that was a highly contentious moment right after the Hamas-Israel war began. Um, the funds have not been transferred to Iran as we understand it currently. Right. So we're wanting to hear, we're expecting to hear about the what's behind the decisions regarding sanctions under the Biden administration. Um, Congressman Heizenga pointed to three questions that he's wanting to, to dig into, which is how restricted funds are held and how Iran accesses them. 
What's the genesis of the $6 billion in those negotiations? What exactly took place and how did that come about? And how the Biden administration helped Iran to access $10 billion, which was um, way, which was, uh, took place after the Biden administration waived sanctions and then uh, Iran could access those, t that $10 billion from Iraq. Right, and, he, and you mentioned just a moment ago uh, Iran getting funding from oil sales. Iran is sanctioned. Um, China says they're not buying oil from Iran, but exper industry experts say that they are. Right. And um, we've just seen that this number of uh, barrels per day has been stepping up. In August, China was buying 1.5 uh, million barrels per day, per day from Iran, and um, that's up from about 900,000 barrels per day in the seven months prior. So, you know, Iran is getting this influx of funds at the same time that Hamas is conducting this attack with thousands of rockets on Israel, and it, it's just this sort of critical moment that this hearing is coming in. We'll have more on the hearing by the House Financial Services Committee um, on understanding the Iranian regime's access to money after the break. Thank you for staying with us. We are tuned in to the House Financial Services Committee hearing titled Moving the Money, Understanding the Iranian Regime's Access to Money Around the World and How They Use It to Support Terrorism. That's right. It's held by the House Oversight and Investigations Subcommittee, which is chaired by Congressman Bill Heizenga. He spoke earlier and we're we'll soon hear from other lawmakers on the importance of this topic and what they're wanting to know. Let's tune in. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member. Great to be back in this chamber a few hours later uh, for the double duty, but a really important topic and work. I do hope we can find bipartisan common ground here. Uh, I do want to address some of the ranking members' last comments and questions because I can answer them pretty quickly and easily. Where was I when President Trump issued oil waivers? Well, in 2018, I was at FDD opposing those waivers, and in 2019, I was in the National Security Council ending them because we ended them in May of 2019. So I don't know where this talking point keeps coming from that Trump did this too. Maximum pressure started in May 2019, Congressman. We ended the oil waivers. That, all that money went on lockdown and escrow accounts. They have not been reopened until this year, until these transfers. Where was I when we were granting waivers under the statute that I wrote as a staffer in 2012, the Iran Freedom Counterproliferation Act, when we allowed Iraq to continue importing electricity from Iran? First I was at FDD and then I was in the National Security Council. And we worked with the Treasury Department and the State Department to ensure those funds were locked down. We allow under the waiver import of electricity, we don't allow Iran to access the funds. Now we do. So I, I don't know where all these, these, these claims keep coming from, but let's stick with facts. Let's stick with facts. If we today, in the wake of October 7th, agree that we need to do all we can to deny this regime in Tehran resources, that it is in our national security interest for the Islamic Republic of Iran to have less money, not more money, at its fingertips, understanding the fungibility of money, putting aside whether this $6 billion you're pointing to has been spent yet or borrowed against yet, an interesting question never asked, 
What about the $10 billion, Congressman? What about that money that was moved out of Iraq to Oman? We have no information about it. We just heard yesterday the waiver was just introduced into the record. We've just learned about it. What's been spent out of there? Is that money frozen? Have the Omanis agreed to that? Have the Iraqis agreed to that? When that waiver expires, will we revert to the old waiver and ensure that money in Baghdad gets locked down for electricity payments? We can allow Iraq to import electricity. We don't have to allow Iran access to the money. Oil sanctions. This isn't just new. This summer, we saw this massive spike as the secret nuclear deal that I outlined in my testimony, my written testimony, started. After Brett McGurk, the White House Middle East coordinator, had gone to Oman, negotiated through the Omanis a secret nuclear understanding, using all kinds of interesting pretexts and executive authorities to start releasing money and stop enforcing sanctions. Why? Because they knew politically they couldn't come to this House to submit a deal under the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act to evade the laws we have all passed, that you have all voted on in the past. Why did they do that? Because they, wa they wanted a nuclear understanding. They wanted to just say, oh, please, just don't go across that 90% enriched uranium threshold. We heard yesterday in testimony that, oh, we should never have gotten out of the JCPOA, look at Iran's nuclear program today. The vast majority of Iran's advancement in its nuclear activities have happened since January 2021. That's when they crossed to 20% enriched uranium, and then to 60%, and now just a stone's throw away, showing us their technical capability to get to 90%. Only when we went from maximum pressure to maximum concessions, maximum deference, the policy needs to change. Oil exports have been steadily rising with non-enforcement throughout 2021 and 2022. It was only this year that they went through the roof with some reports topping two million barrels per day in August under this nuclear deal. And so, no, Congressman, I'm not saying this $6 billion was used to fund October 7th. It's factually inaccurate. But a posture of appeasement for two and a half years that emboldens this regime, a summer negotiated secret nuclear understanding that allows this regime to say, well, the Americans are off the table. They're afraid of us. They're deterred. We've already cut a pact with Saudi Arabia, too, through the Chinese earlier in the year. Now we can turn all of our sights on Israel the only country in the Middle East operating inside of Iran to stop that nuclear program. Now we can activate all of our terror tentacles that we, the IRGC, coordinate in Beirut, a cell coordinating Hezbollah, Hamas, and Islamic Jihad. That's what we need to come together to say, let's lock down these resources. Let's turn our posture from appeasement to deterrence, to pressure. That is how we take on the terror tentacles of Tehran. Look forward to your questions today. Thank you so much for holding this hearing. I know that Qatar came up yesterday. Uh, there may be a hostage deal today uh, involving Qatar. I think it's important we address that in the double game Qatar plays. Uh, but I look forward to your questions. We're tuned in to the House Financial Services Committee hearing titled Moving the Money, Understanding the Iranian Regime's Access to Money Around the World and How They Use It to Support Terrorism. Of course, we're looking at the Iranian regime's involvement in Hamas's attack on Israel and as a state sponsor, the largest state sponsor of terrorism around the world and the implications involved in that. We just heard from Congressman Richard Goldberg, who has been deeply involved with um, various laws and uh, negotiations involving Iran on the U.S. side, and he 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 put out a warning basically saying that the U.S. under the Biden administration has had a posture of appeasement rather than of full pressure, which 
which is, which is leading to a lot of these woes, he said. Right, and he was saying there's this $6 billion of funds that was transferred um, to Iranian accounts in exchange for five American hostages and um, five Iranian hostages. But he's saying it hasn't been borrowed, it hasn't been spent yet by Iran. Iran doesn't have access to it. However, he's saying this is, this is, this comes on the back of uh, $10 billion of Iranian funds released from Iraq to Iranian accounts in Oman, as well as many other, um, yeah, yeah, appeasement type policies that give Iran this um, sort of break. You know, we've seen, sorry, go ahead. Well, he mentioned, well, he mentioned the increasing um, barrels of oil that Iran has been able to sell. You spoke earlier about um, China purchasing oil from Iran. So there have been many fronts on which the U.S. has not held a strong position, and Iran has been able to rake in a lot of profits um, from various sales and fund its regime and its terrorist activities. Um, he also pointed to Iran's advancements in nuclear capabilities, nuclear weapons capabilities, saying that Iran really only crossed the 20% threshold of uranium enrichment after 2021. And of course, now they're indicating there it's possible they're at somewhere near 90% enrichment, which is a pretty scary thought for the entire world, really. Uh, Right, and why is that scary? Again, just to remind you, the Iranian regime is backing Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, as well as other groups around the world that are uh, vehemently opposed to the existence of Israel, to the United States, and any regime that's backing these types of organizations, if they possess a nuclear weapon, it gives them so much more leverage on the international stage yeah. to fund more terrorism and do more things like this. And something I found interesting that he mentioned was that under the Trump administration, um, they were allowing Iraq to accept uh, electricity from Iran, but not to transfer funds back to Iran in payment. I found that an interesting um, solution or situation. Uh, he suggests that that's a solution that should continue. Um, and of course, we're looking at the $10 billion in payment to Iran, which was uh, allowed to go through by the Biden administration um, in payment for electricity that had already been given to Iraq. Um, it's worth looking at a historic take on this. The United States has had sanctions against Iran uh, since 1979, since the Islamic uh, Revolution. So we're, this is a historic moment that we're passing through, and we have a lot of precedent to look at and how things have changed. But we're going to tap back into that hearing and, and listen to more testimony, more statements from lawmakers at this historic moment. Let's tune in. Welcome back. We are tuned into the House Financial Services Committee hearing titled Moving the Money, Understanding the Iranian Regime's Access to Money Around the World and How They Use It to Support Terrorism. The Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations is hosting it. It's chaired by Bill Huizenga from Michigan. Um, we're about to hear from expert witness Gabriel Narona of the Jewish Institute for National Security of America the Gumunder Center for Defense and Strategy. Let's tune in. Thank you, Chairman Heisinga. Thank you, Frank, uh, Ranking Member Green, for having me and distinguished members of the committee. 
Um, over the past decade, the Islamic Republic of Iran has spent more than $20 billion to support foreign terror groups in the Middle East. Uh, it has spent tens of billions of its own dollars on its own terror operations. And, and I think it's important to understand when the Islamic Republic chants death to Israel, they chant death to America, they are really deadly serious about those chants. And we, we learned that two weeks ago. Um, and Mr. Chairman, you are correct, this is not a partisan issue. There's, there really ought to be. They would not distinguish between Republicans and Democrats when they target us, uh, and they don't in their ongoing assassination plots on U.S. soil. Um, Hamas's attack on Israel was only possible um, because of increased funding from the Iranian regime over the last couple of years, not just in the last couple of months, but over the last couple of years. Um, historically, Iran has provided $100 million to Hamas. In the past year, that has increased to $350 million. Um, and I think it's important to understand how they got to the position of being able to increase those funds. Uh, today, um, Iran provides Hamas 93% of its military budget. Um, that funding allowed Hamas to lay low over the last year um, and prepare for these sneak attacks. Uh, Iran also trained 500 Hamas fighters inside Iran as recently as September. I think that is certainly um, a contributing factor to the success of their operations. And the regime could afford this largesse because of the problems um, with financing that really flooded in, as, as you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, um, $80 billion at least in oil sales since the beginning of 2021. Uh, the $10 billion that we'll discuss um, from, from Iraq facilitated by State Department waivers, which I, I saw what you submitted into the record yesterday. They are very strange, having written them myself, very unprecedented. Um, they may now be laundering that money through China to get rid of all humanitarian exemptions. Um, and then the $6 billion um, that was deposited into Qatari accounts uh, in exchange for the release of five Iranian-American hostages. There's also reports that Iran has gained access to $6.7 billion in IMF special drawing rights. Um, that's very much in this committee's jurisdiction. Supreme Leader Hamadeh's philosophy is to use all the funds it can obtain to advance its terrorism. They don't really care about um, providing for the material needs of the Iranian people. They will always prioritize terror. Uh, and the United States should not aid the regime in this effort. Um, a few recommendations, specifically Congress should force the executive branch to enforce its existing oil sanctions against shipping companies, tanker companies, ports, refiners, insurance companies. Um, there are over 300 tankers facilitating trade in Iranian oil which are not sanctioned today. The same and these sanctions need to be mandatory, not discretionary. The same applies to Iran's, uh, the United States sectoral sanctions against Iran's metals and petrochemical exports. Um, those sanctions have really not been enforced in the past 30 months. Second, Congress should work to bring an end to these ongoing energy waivers that we provide to Iraq um, and make sure that they can't, those funds can't be laundered in China. Um, this is a really serious terror financing threat. Um, this issue has gone on for a long time, multiple administrations, and I think it's incumbent on Congress to find a solution with the executive branch on how we can wean Iraq off of Iranian energy independence, um, but then try to bring this to an end fast. Um, third, the United States must claw back the $6 billion um, provided uh, to the Qatari Fund for Iran last month. Uh, it has not been uh, dispersed yet, 
my concern based on Iranian budgeting principles is that they plan out their foreign currency uh, payments months in advance, and they were planning to draw down on this and, and were in the process of moving funds around um, until just now, I think. The deal we made with Iran in August and September became irrelevant the moment they slaughtered, funded the slaughter of 30 Americans in Israel last month uh, and took a dozen more Americans hostage. We should not view that deal as having any legitimacy anymore. Um, and I think the other point that's important to know is the regime has a long history of pilfering food and medicine uh, to resell in the black market in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, the proceeds, even if we gave them food and medicine, would likely go to terror or be stolen by the regime elite. Um, and so I believe Congress should rescind uh, the September 11th waiver to formally and permanently freeze uh, those funds and ultimately work to provide the funds to the victims of terror. Um, I thank you and I look forward to your questions. We are tuned in to the House Financial Services Committee hearing titled Moving the Money, Understanding the Iranian Regime's Access to Money Around the World That's and How They Use It to Fund Terrorism. Right. That is uh, held by the House Oversight and Investigations Subcommittee. And we just heard from the, the House Committee's Congressman Patrick McHenry speaking about his concerns and um, what he wants to know and what he recommends. That's right. We're talking about U.S. sanctions on Iran um, that have been going back, that have gone back to um, 1979 since the Islamic Revolution. These sanctions were originally intended to compel Iran from supporting acts of terror, to persuade them to end their nuclear program, which we're, from what we're hearing is not happening, um, and to limit Iran's strategic power in the Middle East. And McHenry did say that he thinks, you know, these issues with sanctions have occurred across many administrations, but he did point to a few significant changes in the past 30 or so months um, under the Biden administration, and we'll look into those as well. Um, he pointed to the uh, Iranian regime's intentions, and that's worth reiterating, which is that really Iran intends to also destroy America. And when they, he says, when they chant death to Israel, they're really chanting death to America and that we should be taking that very seriously. He also talked about how the Iranian regime has given Hamas $350 million in the past year, and that's a significant increase. Right now they've been, they've been funding 93% of Hamas's military budget, giving them an opportunity to make their plans for the attack that we saw on October 7th. And also tra training them directly. And just a correction, the witness is uh, Gabriel Narenha, that was not Congressman Patrick McHenry. Okay, thanks for correcting the record there. Uh, we also want to look at Hamas's, uh, so I mentioned Hamas was training, hum, uh, Iran was training Hamas fighters. Um, Elite fighters. Right, even as, as late as September. So they were really targeting this, this attack and supporting it. Um, an interesting point that was brought up just now was that Iran may be laundering the money that they're getting through China to get rid of humanitarian requirements. So what we know from many sources and from experts who study this extensively is that the Iranian regime really uh, puts its own people last and puts acts of terror around the world first. So we can expect that any funds that come towards them will be used 
in that manner, at least according to many observers on the issue. And that statement in regards to China was made in, re in relation to the $10 billion that uh, got transferred from Iraq to Iran uh, at the, with the permission of the U.S. through waivers. Right, and we're talking about this hearing where um, Iran, like how is Iran getting the money that they use to fund terrorism? Well, one of the ways is that uh, they sell oil to China. Well, China denies yeah. that, it's, that they're buying oil from Iran. Industry experts say that it's been happening to the tune of 1.5 million barrels per day in August, and that's up from about um, 900,000 barrels per day in the seven months prior to August. So a really significant influx of cash mm. for Iran from China, oil sales to China, money that, that we know Iran is using to fund Hamas. So it's mm. all coming full circle here. We'll have more on the House Committee's hearing on the ways that Iran gets their money and uses it to fund terrorism after the break. Thank you for staying with us. We are tuned into the House Financial Services Committee on <clears throat> uh, uh, a hearing on moving the money, understanding the Iranian regime's access to money around the world, and how they use it to fund terrorism. A huge question right now, considering everything that's happening in the Middle East. This is being held by the House Oversight and Investigations Subcommittee, chaired by Congressman Bill Huizenga. And we're about to hear witness testimony from some of the witnesses that have been called on to give their uh, expertise on this. Let's tune in. Thank you for inviting the Congressional Research Service to testify today. This morning, I'll summarize my written statement on Iran's funds abroad, starting with a brief overview of the U.S. sanctions authorities that underpin the funds and their use, before focusing on the Biden administration's decision earlier this year to facilitate the transfer of $6 billion of those Iranian funds from South Korea to Qatar. I'll finish by suggesting some options and implications for congressional action. So for background, uh, the United States has for decades sought to limit the Iranian government's financial resources via sanctions in an effort to deprive the government of the ability to fund its programs to develop weapons of mass destruction and the means to deliver them, its nuclear activities, and its support for terrorist groups. Led by Congress, these U.S. efforts have included a decades-long effort to limit Iran's petroleum exports, a key revenue source for the regime. Starting in 2011, Congress authorized exceptions from U.S. sanctions for countries that otherwise could be subject to penalties for purchasing Iranian petroleum to continue such purchases if they gradually reduced their imports. Congress further mandated that accepted foreign buyers had to deposit payments for Iranian petroleum in financial institutions of the purchasing country, not in Iran. Congress explicitly permitted the use of those funds for humanitarian trade in multiple Iran-specific sanctions authorities, in line with long-standing provisions in U.S. law that exempt humanitarian goods like food and medicine from U.S. sanctions programs. Still, restrictions on those Iranian funds abroad lead many to describe them as frozen, as foreign financial institutions have generally restricted their use in order not to run afoul of U.S. law and themselves become potential targets for secondary sanctions. In September 2023, in conjunction with mutual prisoner releases from the United States and Iran, the U.S. approved the transfer of $6 billion in Iranian funds from South Korea to Qatar. 
These actions occurred in the context of broader diplomatic engagement to de-escalate U.S.-Iran tensions. To facilitate the transfer of funds, Secretary Blinken issued sanctions waivers to allow European financial institutions to participate without the risk of U.S. sanctions. Executive branch officials did not provide a detailed description of the oversight mechanisms that would have applied to the funds, but said that U.S. oversight in partnership with that of the government of Qatar would be substantial and that the United States would take, quote, appropriate action if Iran attempted to use the funds for purposes other than non-sanctionable humanitarian trade. The September 7th, 2023 Hamas attacks on Israel and resulting conflict have prompted increased scrutiny of U.S. policy towards Iran, a longtime backer of Hamas. This scrutiny includes attention to the $6 billion transfer. According to press reports, Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adiemo told legislators that in the wake of Hamas's assault on Israel, U.S. and Qatari officials had agreed to prevent the use of the funds indefinitely. The administration has not made any official statements on the status of those funds. Going forward, as part of its oversight responsibilities, Congress could consider whether or not to seek greater visibility into Iran's funds abroad, including via legislation to require regular reporting by the administration to Congress on the funds and their use. Congress could also consider whether or not to mandate congressional review of administration decisions with respect to the funds. Some members of Congress are urging or seeking to compel the administration to act in a demonstrable, transparent way to ensure the funds in Qatar are not used for transactions that would benefit the Iranian government. Since September 7th, members of Congress have introduced at least 18 pieces of legislation related to Iran. Many of those bills would rescind the waivers issued to facilitate the transfer and seek to encourage third parties to block or otherwise decline to conduct transactions with the funds. Other legislation would seek to confiscate and repurpose the funds, although the United States' ability to seize the funds appears to be limited, as the United States does not have jurisdiction over them. New official action to newly block the funds could provoke an Iranian response or have other impacts on U.S. interests, including with respect to Qatar, a major non-NATO ally of the United States that hosts major U.S. military facilities. Formal action to rescind the waivers or amend the authorities underlying them could also have implications for Iraq, which has long relied on U.S. sanctions waivers to import Iranian electricity. Congress could also revisit long-standing sanctions exemptions for humanitarian trade, weighing them against the broader goal of pressuring the Iranian government and the interest some members have expressed in supporting the Iranian people. This concludes my brief remarks. Thank you for the opportunity to testify, and I look forward to your questions. We are tuned in to the House Financial Services Committee hearing titled, Moving the Money, Understanding the Iranian Regime's Access to Money Around the World and How They Use It to Support Terrorism. The Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations is hosting it, uh, chaired by Bill Heisinga. And we just heard from witness testimony from Clayton Thomas, who's a specialist in Middle Eastern Affairs and Foreign Affairs at the Defense and Trade Division of Congressional Research Service. So he's got intense and detailed understanding of this issue. And he expressed uh, or he outlined many of the efforts that has, have been taking place and many of the opinions of various lawmakers on this topic. Um, we're looking at bills that have been introduced to try to to um, revert or control the $6 billion, which have been released or earmarked to be released to Iran um, in exchange for hostages. Um, although, although Thomas did say that 
actually um, putting new restrictions on those funds could produce another response from Iran, which could be even more dangerous. Um, right. and, and, you know, this comes, again, he mentioned this, after the Hamas terror attack yeah. on, on Israel. And we know from previous uh, 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 statements by congressmen in, the, in this hearing that 93% uh, of the funding of Hamas's military over the past year or so has come from Iran. Mm, yeah, and we also want to look, just check back into how this whole hearing is looking at how Iran is using money and transferring and laundering money all around the world. This does also involve China quite a bit. We heard about earlier about how the funds, um, China has been buying more and more oil from Iran and the witness, the speaker just earlier was saying that um, Iran may be laundering money through China and through these purchases in order to strip them of humanitarian requirements, which are often placed right. on funds that come to Iran through waivers of sanctions. That's right. And to those, uh, those funds from oil sales to China, um, China denies that they're buying any oil from Iran, but industry experts say that that's not the case. Um, China makes does lie about many of its moves. Um, we know that they've purchased about 1.5 billion dollar billion barrel sorry million barrels per day mm -hmm. from Iran in August, and about 900,000 uh, barrels per day in the seven months prior to August. And again, this is this is funds. These are funds going to Iran, who we know is funding. Hamas uh, and their attack on Israel. And of course, these hu humanitarian uh, considerations stretch from preventing the largest state sponsor of terrorism to have the funds it needs to carry out these terrorist attacks to also considerations for the people of Iran, for the people of Iraq and others who also need, for example, in Iraq, electricity. Clayton Thomas is saying that, you know, restricting funds to, uh, in terms of the exchange of electricity and from Iran would severely affect the Iraqi people, and that's a consideration. So it's quite an intense and complicated area. But um, that, that really wraps up uh, much of our coverage of this hearing, where, uh, which is the moving the money, understanding the Iranian regime's access to money around the world and how they use it to support terrorism. Um, and you've been watching our coverage of that, and we'll be back with more news after the break. Massive manhunt underway in Maine as police search for a man in connection with multiple fatal shootings in the town of Lewiston. We hear the latest from local authorities. Israeli ground troops in Gaza, soldiers raided with tanks overnight ahead of an expected ground incursion. United Auto Workers strike is ending at Ford assembly plants after more than 40 days. It follows a tentative contract agreement between the two sides. More Venezuelans than Mexicans now coming to the U.S. New numbers show that for the first time ever, trends are shifting. 
China's foreign minister paying a rare visit to the U.S. as the two sides try to repair ties. Discussions will include the conflicts in the Middle East and Ukraine. An intensive manhunt remains underway after two shootings rocked Lewiston, Maine last night. The death toll is confirmed at least 18. Thirteen others were injured. Law enforcement said the person of interest, Robert Card, is still at large. I continue to strongly urge Maine people to follow the direction of state and local law enforcement amid this ever-changing situation. Please, if you see anything suspicious, please call 911. There are still many things we don't yet know about these attacks, <clears throat> but the full weight of my administration is behind law enforcement's efforts to capture the person of interest, Robert Card, to hold whoever is responsible for this atrocity accountable under the full force of state and federal law, and to seek full justice for the victims and their families. Authorities say Card is now wanted on eight murder charges since only eight victims have been identified. The shooter opened fire at a bowling alley and a restaurant in Lewiston around 7 p.m. local time. One witness described a harrowing scene at the bowling alley. He said he slid into the area where the pins stand and climbed into the machinery to hide. He said he heard about 10 shots before hiding. Well, we were inside and just no one might have bowling and out of nowhere he just came in and there was a loud pop. I thought it was a balloon. I had my back turned to the door. Um, and as soon as I turned and saw it was not a balloon, he was holding a weapon. I just booked it um, down the lane and I slid basically into where the pins are and climbed up in the machine and was on top of the machines for about 10 minutes until the cops got there. Police released images of a suspect holding a rifle in firing position. Authorities say 40-year-old Robert Card recently threatened to carry out a shooting at another location in Maine. He's a certified firearm instructor and member of the U.S. Army Reserve. Officials say he has reported mental health issues, which include hearing voices. According to Fox News, citing a law enforcement source, Card may have a police scanner and could be listening in on police movements. State police asked residents in Lewiston and in the nearby cities of Auburn and Lisbon to stay indoors. Several schools in the area canceling classes today. President Biden and Senator Schumer ordered flags lowered to half-staff to honor the victims. The FBI and state police are asking anyone with information or tips to call in. Israeli ground troops and tanks now briefly entered Gaza. The military says it launched an hours-long ground raid into northern Gaza overnight. Israeli ground forces struck several military targets in Gaza. That's to prepare the battlefield before a widely expected ground invasion. A minister in Israel's war cabinet today saying Israel's campaign against the Hamas terrorist group in Gaza will soon ramp up with greater force. Aside from the stages in defense and attack, we are promoting the continuation of the campaign and the readiness to step up the attack against Hamas and on all fronts as needed. 
fight against Hamas is a long-term process. It includes security, political and social aspects, and will take years. Meanwhile, Hamas is still holding civilians hostage inside Gaza. The Israeli military today saying that the number of confirmed hostages is still rising. Fallen soldiers and hostages, up until now we have delivered a message to the families of 309 fallen IDF soldiers and 224 hostages. I repeat, 224 hostages. This number unfortunately is updating and changing according to the intel we have at our disposal. He says the number of confirmed hostages could rise still further. He also said the raid into northern Gaza helped get information on hostages. He added that Israel conducted the raids at this stage to gather intel on the ground. A delegation from Hamas is currently visiting Moscow. A Russian foreign ministry spokeswoman confirmed the visit today without providing any further details. Russia's state-run news agency, quoting a source from the terrorist delegation, said senior Hamas member Abu Marzouk was among those visiting. Moscow has repeatedly blamed the current crisis on U.S. diplomacy and called for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Separately, Russia also said that Iran's chief nuclear negotiator is also currently visiting Moscow and spoke with a Russian deputy foreign minister. Russia and China yesterday vetoed a U.S. push for the United Nations Security Council to act on the Israel-Hamas conflict. The resolution draft proposed by the U.S. addresses the worsening humanitarian crisis in Gaza. It calls for a pause in the fighting to allow aid access. Ten council members vote, voted in favor of the resolution, while the United Arab Emirates also voted against it. Brazil and Mozambique abstained from the vote. A further vote on a Russian-drafted resolution called for a humanitarian ceasefire. China and the United Arab Emirates were the only countries to vote in favor of the Russian draft, with nine other members abstaining from the vote. The U.S. and Britain voted against it, saying a ceasefire would only benefit Hamas. China has never condemned the terrorist attack and put pressure on Israel to stop bombing Gaza. At least nine votes are needed for a resolution. It also requires no vetoes by the U.S., France, Britain, Russia or China for it to be adopted. Representative Jamal Bowman has pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor for pulling a fire alarm in the House office building. The incident happened just before lawmakers were to vote on a bill to avoid a government shutdown. The false alarm caused an hour-long evacuation of the building. While Bowman insists it was an accident, prosecutors argued that he knowingly pulled the alarm without a fire or emergency. Bowman has accepted a fine and will write an apology to the Capitol Police. The charge will be withdrawn in three months. Coming up, black market marijuana shops could be funding terrorism. New York State legislators raise concern about how some vendors use limited liability companies. And if you're planning to move, you'll have to make sure it's squared away with the Postal Service. It has a new change of address policy to cut down on fraud. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. 
A major breakthrough regarding the United Auto Workers strike. Ford employees are set to head back to work after 41 days of strike. This after the Auto Workers Union said Wednesday that it had, had reached a tentative contract agreement with Ford. Joining us now to discuss is NTD Business's Don Ma. Don, tell us more about the deal that the two sides agreed to. Sure, Chris. Uh, so first of all, the total economic loss from the UAW strike has reached $9.3 billion. So, you know, of course, when 16,000 strikers are going to return to the job uh, in the next few days, it's great news for everyone. Uh, it's for Sean Fain, for the workers, for the automaker. So this tentative deal uh, for the next four and a half years uh, it, it includes a 25% wage hike over this period. It starts uh, with an upfront increase of 11%, uh, as well as cost of living raises. That's going to push uh, the pay increase over 30% to about $40 per hour for top-scale assembly plant workers uh, by the end of the contract. Um, so UAW's vice president uh, said, temporary workers will get more in wage increases than they have over the past 22 years combined. And temporary workers will get raises over 150%, and retirees will also get annual bonuses. So, you know, this seems like a record-setting agreement uh, for the UAW. And Don, what have been the reactions to this deal? Right, uh, this tentative deal still has to be approved and ratified by 57,000 uh, union members at the company at Ford. Uh, but it seems like the UAW president, Sean Fain, um, he's very satisfied uh, with this deal. He said uh, the deal is record-breaking. And like I said before, a lot of people are happy with, with it. Uh, investors are happy as well. Ford stock was up a few percent after the deal was announced. Uh, president Biden also commented. Uh, he said he applauds the UAW and Ford for coming together in negotiations. Uh, General Motors, though, and Stellantis both provided a statements. Uh, there's, they're, they're saying they're hard at work uh, with the UAW to reach a tentative agreement as soon as possible. Ford as well said in a statement that they're pleased to have reached a tentative agreement. What's next for the UAW here, Don? So Ford was just the first uh, of Detroit's big three car manufacturers to negotiate a settlement. There's still some work left to do. Uh, the UAW still have to uh, now turn its attention to talks with General Motors and Stellantis. Uh, but, you know, this deal with Ford could help set a template for, uh, for settlements with the other two automakers. These two have previously offered a 23% wage increase. So, you know, we'll see if they are willing to increase that number just by a little bit more. But talks should fall in line uh, fairly quickly because uh, all three were within a narrow gap of each other. You know, typically during past auto strikes, a UAW deal with one automaker has led to the other companies matching it. Uh, but there are questions as to whether Sean Fain has asked for too much as well. Uh, the Detroit automakers have argued that the UAW's demands will significantly raise costs. All right. Thank you very much, Don. Thank you. Big GDP growth meets expectations at 4.9%. The Bureau of Economic Analysis released its third quarter GDP report this morning. We speak with chief strategist at Mill Street Research, Sam Burns, about the nation's economic output. 
Sam Burns, thank you for joining us. GDP growth increased from 2.1% in the second quarter to 4.9% in the third. That's more than double despite recent Fed rate hikes. What's driving this increase? Well, in the third quarter, what we saw was uh, strong consumer spending. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, services in particular uh, got called out as an area of particular strength. Uh, people going to Taylor Swift concerts or seeing uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer. Uh, so those kind of that kind of spending was quite strong. There was also strong government spending uh, as well as some uh, inventory buildup. So it was a kind of a, a, a number of different things that combined uh, to produce strong growth this quarter, uh, much more so than last quarter. Now, this report, like you're saying, indicates uh, increases in inventory investment. What does this type of spending say about how businesses view the future? Right. Inventory uh, accumulation uh, tends to be a you know, very sort of cyclical thing. It goes up and down quarter to quarter quite a bit. Um, so there's a buildup in, in inventories after uh, less so uh, last quarter. So it tells you that there's probably going to be uh, less growth from inventory, uh, say, next quarter in the fourth quarter. Um, so it, it says that consumer uh, Companies are still seeing consumer demand and building up their inventories to reflect that, uh, but that can't go on forever in terms of inventory building. So, uh, so the assumption is that that's going to be a, a reason why growth will be a somewhat slower uh, in the fourth quarter. And Sam, what to you is most surprising about the current GDP numbers we're seeing? Uh, so I think this, you know, the surprise is simply that uh, consumers are still spending, even though uh, mortgage rates have gone up, you know, auto rates have gone up, uh, that the, the Federal Reserve's tightening has not so far caused broader uh, consumer spending to really retrench uh, the way you might have expected it to. Uh, so I think some of that is, is helped by government spending uh, support, um, but I think it's also that uh, incomes and wages uh, have remained strong, and uh, that's been a, really the core underlying driver for the U.S. economy. Now, GDP is up, as we're saying, and consumers are spending more. But is GDP an accurate representation of how people in the real world feel about the economy? Well, there's certainly been a lot of uh, divergences, I would say, between what you see in consumer sentiment surveys, for instance, and what you see in the sort of the hard data like GDP or the unemployment numbers and, and wage growth. Uh, by, by, by most of the data, the economy is doing fairly well. Most people have jobs. Wages are rising. Uh, these are typically things that would be uh, positive for consumer sentiment, uh, but uh, we've seen a lot of uh, more negative readings from consumer sentiment, which partly reflects, I think, the lagged effects of the inflation we saw since COVID, uh, since 2021, and, uh, and and just concerns about the the world in general. Uh, you know, with you know, you know, violence in the Middle East or uh, the global slowdown in China. There's a lot of things that are going on outside the U.S. Uh, that may be weighing on on sentiment as well. But there has been, for the last two or three years, really, uh, a, a divergence between uh, what's going on in the economy and what consumers uh, perceive uh, or say to, to surveys, uh, which is historically very unusual. And to your point about the state of the world, with the new Israel-Hamas war on top of uh, the Ukraine war, as well as a potential you know, conflict in, in Taiwan, um, how could all of this affect GDP going forward? Well, I think, um, you know, one thing would be whether U.S. defense spending uh, were, were to increase further. Uh, it's increased somewhat uh, in response to, to Ukraine and so forth. Uh, so that would be one impact if government spending uh, that was related to defense would, would increase. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, it's uh, the effect on oil prices, uh, certainly, uh, particularly in the Middle East, uh, can affect uh, inflation and Fed policy and the U.S. economy uh, sort of indirectly in that way. So it would probably have only a secondary effect uh, in the short term, 
but uh, in the longer term, it could affect both uh, how people perceive things and, uh, and the government response, which would really be the direct impact. All right, Sam Burns, Chief Strategist at Mill Street Research. Thank you. My pleasure. Venezuelans now coming to the U.S. at higher rates than Mexicans for the first time ever. Illegal crossings mostly consist of Venezuelan immigrants. The latest monthly report from Customs and Border Protection gives new insight into the data. Numbers show over 50,000 Venezuelans were arrested at the southern border in September. Meanwhile, less than 40,000 Mexican immigrants were arrested during the same time. Other illegal immigrants came from Guatemala, Honduras, and Colombia. For many years, Mexicans accounted for the vast majority of illegal crossings. The CBP commissioner says the agency plans to enforce consequences that includes direct deportation to Venezuela. When New York legalized marijuana in 2021, legal recreational dispensaries opened for the first time, but plenty of illegal shops opened as well. Now state legislators are concerned that black market operations are using limited liability companies to fund terrorism. LLCs make it challenging to identify the actual owner of a business. Government accountability organizations, organization Reinvent Albany published some revealing data in September. 37% of Manhattan properties are owned by LLCs. State lawmakers have introduced the LLC Transparency Act. The legislation would require LLCs to disclose owners' names, addresses, and dates of birth. The New York legislator passed the bill in, in June, and it's now waiting for Governor Hochul's signature. In the United States, Postal Service has implemented a new change of address policy. The mail carrier says it's an effort to address fraud. USPS says on its website that the new process is meant to protect customers' identities. A passcode is sent for verification after submitting a change of address request online. If the process isn't followed, the change of address won't take effect. Those hoping to change their address in person at the post office will have to show an ID. The Environmental Protection Agency wants to ban a harmful chemical often found in drinking water, commonly called TCE or trichloroethylene. It's a ubiquitous contaminant. It's in up to 18% of U.S. drinking water, according to federal data, and it's linked to health concerns like cancer, Parkinson's, and liver disease. That's why the EPA wants it phased out of consumer products and most commercial uses. It's often found in metal, de metal degreasers, paints, refrigerants, and some auto products. The EPA is inviting the public to weigh in on the issue. The proposal follows an EPA revision to the Toxic Substances Control Act in January. The agency says TCE poses an unreasonable risk to human health and adds there are safer chemical alternatives available. Ever have a chip and then another and then another and before you know it, you've eaten an entire bag? That might have more to do with the food's addictive quality than your self-control. A study has found that ultra-processed foods may be as addictive as cigarettes or heroin. Think ice cream, chips, french fries, soda, cake, and cookies. They are high in fat, carbohydrates, and sugar with little to no nutritional value. According to the study, the combination of refined carbohydrates and fats has a super-addictive 
super addictive effect on brain reward systems. In total, researchers say 14% of adults and 12% of children are addicted to ultra-processed foods. Three million dollars. That's what a Dunkin' franchisee in the Atlanta, Atlanta area is paying a woman to settle a lawsuit over hot coffee falling on her lap. The unnamed woman alleged the February 2021 incident caused severe burns and life-altering injuries. She claimed it happened because the cup's lid was not secured. Her attorney said the lid came off after she was given the drink and the coffee spilled on her lap, causing second and third degree burns to her thighs, groin and abdomen. According to a statement, she had to have extensive skin grafts. The injury resulted in her spending weeks in a burn unit, costing her $200,000 in medical expenses. Golden Donuts LLC, the franchisee, didn't immediately respond for comment. Corporate parent Duncan isn't named in the lawsuit and also didn't respond. An important warning now about some electric scooters sold under the brand name Zoos and Twos. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission is urging consumers to immediately stop using Twos Elite 60-volt electric scooters over risk of fire. The scooters were sold ex exclusively in Tus Urban Ride stores in New York and online. The CPSC says Tus Urban Ride has refused to recall the scooters, but the warning comes after two people, including a seven-year-old child, died in a New York apartment fire last April. Local fire officials determined the blaze was caused by the lithium-ion battery in a Tus Elite 60-volt scooter. The stated range of Tesla's electric vehicles may not be very accurate. The Justice Department is investigating the EPA's estimates of how far Tesla models can go on a single charge. It comes after consumer reports found the models only went 274 miles as opposed to the EPA's stated range of 326 miles. It's well known that electric vehicles get fewer miles to the charge in cold weather, but consumer reports performed its test when it was warm out. Further, other EVs tested came much closer to their stated ranges or exceeded them. Part of how the EPA calculates its range number comes from data provided by automakers. That means if it's wrong, it can cause legal problems for the automaker. Both Tesla and the Justice Department declined to comment on the investigation. And Apple is raising the price of its Apple TV Plus streaming service. The hike brings it to 10 bucks a month, or $99 for the year. That's up $3 from $7 a month, or $30, or 30 more dollars if you pay for an entire year. The last time prices went up was a year ago. Before that, prices were steady for three years. Apple does not disclose how many people subscribe to Apple TV. This is the latest streaming service to raise prices this year, joining Netflix, Disney+, Hulu, and Max. Boeing continues to lose money on the next generation of Air Force One jets. The company reported it lost an additional $482 million on the contract to retrofit two F-47 jets. That stemmed from engineering changes, labor instability, and negotiations with supplies. 
The total loss in the deal is now more than $1 billion. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun admitted last year the company never should have signed the contract with the Air Force. They agreed to produce two jets for nearly $4 billion, but supplier costs have soared since then. And artists from a small business in Texas are fighting a mural ban. They're arguing in federal court that their city's new law violates the First Amendment by insisting public murals get pre-approved. I spoke with the artists Brad Smith and Kay Ray earlier today. Brad, Kay, welcome to our show. Thanks for coming on. To begin with, could you tell us a bit about your background in mural art and your company, Tilt Vision? Well, Tilt Vision Art was formed about three years ago. Uh, and Brad, though, has been a mural artist for 46 years. He started his mural career in Texas in Deep Ellum in Dallas and did the first dozen murals there. In fact, Vanilla Ice uh, recorded his music video, Ice Ice Baby, in front of his mural. He then helped kick off near Southside District neighborhood in Fort Worth, did the first murals there, and he's credited with helping to start that neighborhood. And then in Burleson, wow. he revitalized their whole old town, downtown, and is credited for helping that thrive and boom now. So we Incredible. specialize in art-based economic development. And now you're suing your city, alleging that they're violating your First Amendment rights based on a new law. Could you tell me yes. about how, how you think that is affecting your business? Well, it killed our contract with our client, Finishes Solutions. So the new law restricts where a mural can be placed, what can go in it. It bans any symbolism, any lettering, yeah, so if I wanted to write the word love, I would be fined for doing that. If I wanted to write the word freedom, which I did, I would be fined $2,000 a day for doing that. And it's a misdemeanor, too. Why is that? Yeah. Why would you be fined for well, that? In, in their ordinance, they say that there's no symbolism, no lettering, nothing that represents, and no logos, and whoever pays for a mural from us, we put them as a sponsor in the corner. They constitute that as a sign. Um, they say that no mural can go on the facade of any building, only the side or the back. But if it goes on the facade, it's cherry-picked, the, the, the front facade then it can uh, only be in certain areas and then the artist that paints it cannot be paid to paint it. And so why and, do you think that this new law violates your right to free expression and economic freedom enshrined in the First Amendment? Well, you know, I'm trying to paint something. I usually start out with some nostalgic pieces when I go to a small town especially because I'm trying to bring the citizens into it and paint something about them. It's not really about me. It's about the citizens. Mostly I try to do like a postcard in the beginning. So uh, I was just doing what I do, and all of a sudden they're trying to stop me. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm trying to paint Americana. It, it, it directly prohibits what we can put in our murals, so it's censorship. And it's not just us, by the way. It's also every citizen of Waller, if they wanted an American flag painted on their garage door, their barn, they can't have it. If they wanted to say, welcome home, Johnny, since he's come home from the war, they can't have it. 
it, it totally restricts freedom of expression and freedom of speech. And how do you think that will affect communities and artists going forward in Waller? I believe that this ordinance directly steps on the necks of every citizen in Waller, every business person, every artist, because it, it violates our ability to speak freely, you know, to express ourselves, whatever that, that may be. And so artists can't make a living there. Business people can't do murals to attract new clientele. So it hurts their marketing. And if this is allowed to continue, it can spread yeah. to other cities and towns. And, and just finally, have you reached out to Waller Mayor Danny Marberger Mar for a discussion on these issues and what's been the response if you have? Well, before the city council meeting, I sent an email to the mayor and every city council member introducing ourselves, reassuring them that, you know, we're not going to do anything divisive. I heard nothing. After the city council meeting, I sent another email inviting them to come to the table and to avoid going to court. And I heard nothing. They acted like I didn't say a word. And our client who hired us to do these murals has gotten pushback from the city with their permitting and stuff. So, it, you know, ultimate power is not part of America. You, we need to check people once in a while to say, hey, I'm a citizen. I can say whatever I want. And how, you know, a businessman invests millions of dollars in this city. Why can't we talk about that building that they put all this money in that tells the history of the city or whatever. It's 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 our right as Americans to do that. And, and it's based out of fear. We, we know that. That's all we have time for. Thank you so much for your time. Brad Smith and Kay Ray from Tilt Vision Art. Really appreciate it. Coming up, European leaders meet to discuss aid for Ukraine and Israel. Find out which European country doesn't want to send any more aid to Ukraine. And the UK is looking to build the world's first AI safety institute. The country's prime minister introduced the project. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. And now we turn to the biggest news today from Europe. Leaders from the European Union are gathering in Brussels for a two-day meeting. They're discussing conflicts in the Middle East and in Ukraine. The president of the European Council today laying out where the bloc stands on the two conflicts and what the leaders are expected to discuss. We have uh, an important European Council in difficult times. It is very important to demonstrate again that the European Union is united, united to defend our principles, to defend our, our values. And that's why we, we support uh, Israel and its right to defend itself in line with the international law and the humanitarian international law. We support Ukraine for as long as it takes. Uh, we will discuss uh, how we can develop more support, how we can discuss all, also the topics of the frozen assets, for instance, to make sure that uh, we mobilize uh, money uh, for the support for Ukraine, for the rebuilding uh, of um, uh, Ukraine. The summit declaration is expected to include a reference to humanitarian pauses in Gaza to allow in humanitarian aid. In terms of support for Ukraine, Slovakia's newly appointed prime minister is not expected to support further military assistance or additional sanctions against Russia. 
He campaigned heavily on pledges to halt Slovakia's military aid to Ukraine and also to make foreign policy independent and protect borders from illegal immigrants. Meanwhile, Ukraine is suspending a major transportation hub for its goods. The country announced today that it's pausing the use of its new Black Sea Grain Corridor. That's due to military risks. Russia and other countries also have access to the Black Sea. It's an important waterway because it gives them access to the world's oceans. Grains are one of Ukraine's largest exports. The country says it has to halt operations for at least a few days due to the threat from increased Russian military activity in the area, specifically flights. As for Ukraine's Air Force, a handful of its pilots are in Arizona learning how to fly F-16s. It's part of an international training program that the Arizona National Guard operates. Before heading to Arizona, the pilots spent time in San Antonio learning English. Defense officials won't say how many pilots are involved, only saying it's, quote, a small number. The training is expected to last several months. At the same time, a joint military exercise for advanced air-to-air -air training in Spain. Six countries took part in the Ocean Sky 2023 military exercise. Air Force teams from Spain, Portugal, Greece, Turkey, Italy, and France participated in the exercises. They specifically trained how air forces can support ground forces in possible war scenarios. And an update to the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Armenia's prime minister today saying he hopes to conclude a peace agreement with his counterpart from Azerbaijan soon. We hope that in the coming months we shall sign an agreement on peace and establishment of relations with Azerbaijan based on Armenia's proposed principles for mutual border recognition based on 1991 borders. He also said he hopes to partially open Armenia's border with Turkey soon. Turkey is a close ally to Azerbaijan and has a difficult past with Armenia. His comments came amid efforts to bring peace in the South Caucasus. That's after Azerbaijan last month retook a contested region. The region had been ruled by breakaway ethnic Armenians since the 1990s. And British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak speaking on artificial intelligence today. He says his country will establish the world's first AI safety institute. I can announce that we will establish the world's first AI safety institute right here in the UK. It will advance the world's knowledge of AI safety and it will carefully examine, evaluate and test new types of AI so that we understand what each new model is capable of, exploring all the risks, from social harms like bias and misinformation through to the most extreme risks of all. His announcement comes ahead of a global summit on artificial intelligence next week. The summit will be held at a historic estate north of London. It once served as a base for World War II codebreakers. Sunak said China was invited to attend the summit along with U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris and other guests from across the globe. A former Italian prime minister is now the nation's new head of artificial intelligence. Italy previously banned ChatGPT only to reverse course later. Now the appointment of Giuliano Amato has drawn criticism from government officials who question his experience in technology and AI. 
His age, 85, has also prompted scrutiny picked up by Italian media. And now turning to Asia. China's top diplomat is in the U.S. today for a three-day visit. It's the latest move by Washington and Beijing to keep high-level talks open amid growing tensions. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi is said to meet with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Discussions will center on the Israel-Hamas conflict, conflict, the war in Ukraine, and the recent boat clash between China and the Philippines in the South China Sea. Wang's visit is seen as paving the way for a meeting between Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping next month in San Francisco. And a joint maritime drill is underway between South Korean and U.S. navies. The four-day drill is part of an annual field training exercise involving 30 warships, combat helicopters, and fighter jets. Both militaries conducted various operations against enemies' possible provocations at sea and strengthened joint operational capabilities. Earlier, the two countries held a joint aerial exercise with Japan near the Korean Peninsula. That was to expand the country's response capabilities against North Korea's nuclear threats. The most sophisticated money laundering probe in Australian history. After a 14-month investigation, authorities charged seven people with helping a Chinese crime group launder over $140 million in dirty money. Police say the money remittance chain known as the Chungjiang Currency Exchange was secretly run by the Long River Money Laundering Syndicate. The IFP alleges the Chungjiang Currency Exchange, which is one of the most prominent independent money remitters in Australia, is a front for a money laundering syndicate that transfers dirty money for large criminal enterprises. We think this is what probably the most sophisticated and most significant money laundering organization that we have disrupted in Australia. More than 300 officers conducted 20 raids around the country and seized tens of millions of dollars worth of luxury homes and vehicles. The four Chinese nationals and three Australian citizens made their first appearance in a Melbourne court today. Police said the syndicate coached its criminal customers on how to create fake business paperwork like false invoices and bank statements. Some of the laundered money came from cyber scams, the trafficking of illicit goods and violent crime. And India has resumed part of its visa services for Canadians. Officials say they will continue to issue standard entry visas in business, medical and conference visas. This is the latest development in a diplomatic row following the killing of a Sikh separatist leader in British Columbia. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau claimed an Indian agent was linked to the murder. In response, India suspended new visas for Canadians last month. Canada then pulled out 41 of its diplomats from India. India denies any connection to the shooting. Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida was present at the Japan Mobility Show today. The event demonstrated technologies designed to help with disaster relief efforts. Kishida was joined by representatives of the country's auto industry, including the chairman of Toyota. The Mobility Show is taking place for the first time since the pandemic. Coming up for the first time in a decade, a rare emperor penguin girl chick hatches at SeaWorld San Diego. The animal is considered at risk of extinction.
And surveillance footage captures the moment a deer burst into a restaurant, causing diners to scatter in every direction. Stay tuned for the amusing footage. Welcome back. A big party for a new star at SeaWorld San Diego, a baby girl emperor penguin chick. It's been a whole decade since the last time this happened, so you can only imagine the excitement at the aquarium and theme park. Take a look at the cuteness overload. Talk about a superstar struggle. This adorable chick hatched on September 12th encountered a bit of a hitch while trying to bust out of her cozy shell. As the staff at SeaWorld soon discovered, her beak had a small malformation that was causing the trouble. But fear not, after closely monitoring her for days, they made a tiny hole in that egg, giving our little fighter the boost she needed to finally make her grand entrance into the world. Emperor penguins are unique compared to most penguin species because they breed in the middle of the Antarctic winter. So this is the darkest, coldest time of year, and that's when they choose to lay their eggs. So here at SeaWorld San Diego, that means end of June, beginning of July is when we get our first emperor penguin eggs. We're all worn out. We've been here 24 hours a day for the last month, but this is the most exciting thing we'll do all year, potentially all decade. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recently said the animal is at risk of extinction. It's finalizing protections for Antarctica's emperor penguin under the U.S. Endangered Species Act. SeaWorld San Diego is home to 17 of these suave birds. It's the only spot outside of Antarctica where you can hang out with these feathered darlings in the entire Western Hemisphere. That's right. And did you know that they, 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 hover, they huddle together so close and in such large groups mm -hmm. that they can actually be seen from space? Oh, incredible. Well, I guess you'd need to have a large huddle for that kind of cold weather in the they Antarctica. Can, Right? It, they could actually count like individual penguins from space, too. Wow. Gosh. I've heard, actually, these, these penguins are pretty remarkable. Apparently, the, the fathers do something kind of unusual, which is that they, um, they mind the egg while it's incubating. I suppose, again, under such cold conditions, the, the dad would be the, the warmest one to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I can think of a lot of human moms who would appreciate that kind of right. support right. for the kids <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Well. Talk about a dining experience like no other. People eating at Noodles and Company usually want to save a buck, not have one interrupt their meal. But that is what happened in Beloit, Wisconsin, when a deer came crashing through a restaurant window. Surveillance footage captured the moment a buck burst into the eatery, causing diners to scatter in every direction. Undeterred by the commotion, the deer embarked on a grand tour of the dining area and even ventured into the kitchen before making its grand exit. A quick-thinking employee opened a back door, providing the perfect escape for the unexpected visitor. Thankfully, nobody was injured during this extraordinary incident, and the location has since reopened after a deep clean. The restaurant was offering a two-buck mac and cheese special, available exclusively on Wednesdays. It's the perfect way to commemorate the memorable visit from our four-legged friend. Two-buck mac and Hilarious. cheese special. That <laughs> I'd is go good. for that. <laughs> right, dad jokes galore. Yeah. 
Man, if I had a nickel for every time a uh, deer walked into my convenience store, yeah, my gosh. restaurant. Indeed, you'd be rich. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Yeah. People, where I live, there's a lot of deer. Um, and, you know, people from, from the city come up and they're like, oh, so cute, a deer. Yeah. But my mom is like, get that deer out of my backyard. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I would still think they're cute. <laughs> oh, yeah, I do too. A massive explosion in space, and it's over a million times brighter than the entire Milky Way. The gamma ray explosion is the second brightest event witnessed in over 50 years. It's called a kilonova. Two neutron stars collided and merged in a galaxy about a billion light years away. That means this happened a billion years ago, and the light just now reached Earth. The James Webb Space Telescope and other observatories witnessed it. That's according to a study published in the journal Nature. And in the aftermath of the kilonova, they detected heavy metals and chemical elements, some necessary for much of life on Earth. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with any news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.